going on, everyone, and welcome to another episode of From My Point of View. Today, the U.S. women's national soccer team had their trip around New York City. They had like their own little, I don't think it was as big as like a Super Bowl parade or whatever, but they had their own little trolley cart, run, not trolley cart, but like wagon, whatever, uh, bus thing rolling around uh, New York City celebrating their World Cup win. And that's where I'm going to start off this podcast because they were, it was one of the most like dominant runs I've ever seen in anything, uh, men's or women's. No one stood a shot. I mean, the only one who made it even close was England. And even then, I mean, I don't think anyone was ever worried watching. I mean, at least I wasn't. I always felt like they especially because they got off to such a hot start with uh, putting up, like, what was it, 13 goals in the first round, the first game. Uh, they were incredible. Um, and they won their second World Cup in a row by defeating the Netherlands in the finals by a score of 2 to nothing. So, Depp, just like my original question, is it the most dominant run one of the most dominant runs in anything of all time, uh, just as far as like clean sweeps, you know. It might be. I mean, the Warriors were, uh, not even the Warriors. I was gonna say that first year with Kevin Durant, they won seven games. So I don't even think that um, with the Rockets. But it, it's up there. It is up there. Certainly, World Cup wise, it's got to be one of the most. I mean, strictly speaking, women's World Cup history that has to be one of like the most dominant running of of all time. So, congratulations to the U.S. women's national team. Uh, now, of course, there causes a lot of uh, arguments about women's pay and uh, how the women's don't make as much as the men's team, even though the men's team is trash and the women's team is consistently amazing. I'm not going to get into all of that. Uh, I feel like there could be a way to pay them more. I don't think they'll ever be able to make as much as the men in sports just based off of sheer profitability for men's sports against women's sports. It just... The revenue that men's sports make historically and unfortunately will always be higher than the sports that women's make. It's just the way it is. I, it happens in the NBA and the WNBA. The WNBA has been barking up this tree for years about how they deserve to get paid more. But when the WNBA is only playing 34 games in the regular season and the men's teams are and the, the NBA is playing 82 and the women's team there's maybe like or the WNBA there's maybe 2,000 people that show up to a WNBA game where in a regular NBA game there's like I don't even know how much an NBA stadium fits 10,000 whatever it is it's just it's never it's never going to be the same Madison Square Garden seats 20,000 people for a, that's for a concert when there's that many people going to NBA games and not that many people going to WNBA games, the ad revenue and the TV deals, none of it adds up to be enough to be able to play, pay the players what they want. And it's it happens to work the same way with the, the soccer team, but I just I really feel like there has to be 
some way to to pay them more money, but I don't know. It's, just, it's something they'll have to work out in their next like collective bargaining agreement. Because uh, I like to see them get paid more. The U.S. men's team's trash. <laughs> no offense to the men's team, but they never do well. Um, you know, they made it to like what was it like the Sweet Six, the quarterfinals once, and everyone was going bananas. So I, I don't know if we'll ever see a change in that regard, but congratulations to them regardless. They were absolutely amazing, and it was a lot of fun to watch them absolutely embarrass every other team there in the tournament. Uh, as for the rest of the episode, we'll start with Kawhi Leonard, of course, signing his deal with the Clippers today, a three-year deal. Uh, max contract with the Los Angeles Clippers. I think he's set to make about $108 million. Uh, three years, two years, plus a player option. So he's scheduled to be a free agent in twenty in the summer of 2021 when he is, I believe, he'll be 30 years old because he just turned 28. Uh, so he'll be 30, 31 years old. So Kawhi playing close to the chest. We saw LeBron do this a lot, of course, after he left Miami. He did sort of the same thing with Cleveland. Uh, he was doing a lot of one-and-ones where uh, I think his first— he spent the four years in Cleveland after the four years in Miami. So he did a one-and-one and, one and then re-signed for uh, two years plus another one. and then he So he stayed for two years and then opted out, went to the Lakers. Um, Kawhi seems to be doing, or seems to have that, a, a similar plan with the Lakers. He's scheduled to be a free agent with Paul George also. So he lined up his contract with Paul George to, for both of them to be free agents in 2021. Uh, Paul George, of course, already had that contract with OKC and the Clippers traded for him. And, uh, speaking of that trade, of course, a, Colossal trade. This whole, all this news, I think, broke at about it was like two a.m., three a.m., ridiculously early. But the Thunder ended up trading Paul George to the Clippers, who in turn signed Kawhi, and the Thunder got in return four unprotected first-round picks. Let me pull it up here: uh, a 2021 unprotected first from Miami, a 2022 unprotected first from the Clippers, a 2023. Lottery protected Miami first, a 2023 first round pick swap with the Clippers, a 2024 unprotected first round pick from the Clippers, a 2025 first round pick swap with the Clippers, and a 2026 unprotected first round pick from the Clippers, as well as Shea Gilgis Alexander and Danilo Gallinari. A lot of picks, but who knows how that's going to shape up because if the Clippers in Miami, or my, you remember Miami just got the sign and trade with Jimmy Butler. They're not going to be terrible. You know, low seed in the eight in the, in the East probably because all they really have right now is Jimmy Butler, but they'll never be, you know, who knows how many times they'll be in the lottery. Probably not many. You're dealing with mid round picks here. Sam Presti has not shown uh, great 
drafting ability in the mid-rounds. He hasn't been amazing with those picks in a while. You know, he, of course, he drafted Durant, Westbrook, and Harden, all of them top five picks. But everyone else after that, you know, maybe Steven Adams, you could say, was a really good pick. But he hasn't drafted particularly well in a decade. So it is a little nerve-wracking to see what he'll do with those picks. But they're like eight years into the future right now. Or uh, seven years into the future. So we won't know until that time comes. Uh, Maybe the 2025-2026 picks will be all right. But again, who knows? Um, But they get that haul for Paul George. And now suddenly the Clippers are the favorite to win the NBA Finals this season with arguably one of the most lethal defensive teams we've ever seen. Patrick Beverly, Landry Shamet, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, and Montrez Harrell with Lou Will coming off the bench. Uh, That, I mean, that's incredible. That's an incredibly lethal defensive lineup. And I'm sure I'm, I'm forgetting some people, but those six guys right there, that's that's a nasty lineup. I mean, they got depth, too. I, that's, I, I'm upset to see Shea Gilgis Alexander go because he was really good, but that's probably why uh, Presty wanted him. And now this brings up, unfortunately... Uh, the Russell Westbrook situation in Oklahoma City. After seeing Paul George go, um, the Thunder also traded Jeremy Grant, uh, who was coming off of a career year in OKC. They traded him to Denver. So they're blowing it up. It's it's all gone. Um, and Russell Westbrook is now the last remaining piece. And seeing Paul George go, who, I mean, Paul George said there's no hard feelings. And he uh, he said on Twitter he will not condone any Russell Westbrook slander, which I commend Paul George. Um, and Russell Westbrook came out said, you know, love you, Brody, stuff like that. Uh, no hard feelings, it seems like, for Russell Westbrook and Paul George. But uh, Westbrook now realizing, you know, his loyalty has not been met with the same loyalty from other players. His loyalty to OKC has not been met with the same loyalty from other players. And he understands now that it is time to go because there are reports that he and his agent approached Presti, who also agreed that maybe it was time to start shopping around Russell Westbrook for the first time in his career to see if they could trade him to a destination of his uh, desire. And Miami was one of those teams that popped up. But again, Miami... Uh, they were able to pull off that Jimmy Butler sign-and-trade, but they are still struggling with uh, some cap situation. So they would definitely have to get another team involved and do a uh, some type of three-way trade um, in where OKC will probably, uh, if they could deal maybe someone else, I don't know, deal Steven Adams maybe and really just go like, balls to the wall this we're going we're gonna throw a bunch of like mid-level talent out there and get a top five pick next year if they trade Steven Adams and Russell Westbrook 
big possibility. Uh, you could see Steven Adams go somewhere um, that needs a big, maybe somewhere like the Celtics. I don't know if the Celtics would be willing to really be trading that much. They did just get Enos Cantor, but again, I don't think. I mean, listen, Enos Cantor's. It's for him to be the starting center, questionable. So if they got Steven Adams, wouldn't be terrible. I don't know how that fits in really with their cap situation. Again, I'm not aware of what the Celtics situation is there. Um, but to move maybe possibly Steven Adams along with Russell Westbrook in a three-way trade, uh, they got to find somewhere. I mean, Miami's the only report that's really come out right now because I think that's just the one location Russell Westbrook threw out there. Like, hey, if I want to go somewhere, go to Miami. Him and Jimmy Butler would be hilarious. Uh, my buddy sent a, a meme in our group chat today of the mountain and the hound from Game of Thrones, that picture of them standing on the stairwell with uh, Drogon's fire coming out in the background. And the caption was, Jimmy Butler and Russell Westbrook in the locker room when they lose their fourth straight game in the middle of January. <laughs> and it was spot on. Them on a team together would be crazy. I, I don't even... It would be... I don't know how the chemistry would work. Like, they're both fiery competitors, and they'll both push, push each other to be the best that they could possibly be, and I'm sure the practices would be ridiculously intense. But at the same time, they could easily butt heads, and it would just destroy the entire chemistry of the team. It's one or the other. There is no middle ground to settle on there. But... Again, Westbrook is finally on the market for Oklahoma City. Uh, Danny Green, after Kawhi made his decision to sign with the Clippers, he agreed to sign with the Lakers, signing a two-year $30 million deal. Uh, he joins also DeMarcus Cousins, signing a one-year deal. The Lakers re-signed Rondo to a two-year deal. So their lineup is interesting. They announced that they were going to be playing LeBron at the point, which, I mean, he is... that All that means is that they're not going to have another point guard on the floor with him. They're just going to run a big lineup from the start of the, of the game. So LeBron's going to get the ball at full court instead of half court. Really doesn't make that much of a difference other than them playing big. So you're looking at a lineup of LeBron, Danny Green, Kuzma, Anthony Davis, and... One of Demarcus Cousins or JaVale McGee, whoever they decide to come off the uh, to come off the bench in the beginning of the season. Demarcus Cousins, of course, going to have to be rehabbing and training a lot to get back into NBA basketball shape and get his stamina up and stuff like that because he was really gasp grabbing grasping for air uh, during the NBA Finals. But the Lakers, they they shaped up okay. Um, I wouldn't call their Offseason a disaster. You know, they wanted, of course, Kawhi and um, to join them with Anthony Davis and LeBron. They didn't get him, but they got good enough role players. Danny Green's a nice addition. Uh, you just surround him with shooters, but I think they did hinder themselves a little waiting for Kawhi to make his decision when they could have been out courting other players to sign but they didn't want to sign them because they had to save the room for Kawhi, which he didn't even end up coming. So them waiting out Leonard's decision backfired a little bit, but they were still able to 
get a couple of more role players on their roster. NBA Summer League started off last weekend, and uh, R.J. Barrett, I was a little concerned. His motor is there. I mean, he's all over the place. He's playing pretty solid defense. He uh, He's grabbed 10 rebounds in multiple games. He's just been struggling shooting. Uh, his last game was his most impressive. He had 16 points on uh, a decent percentage shooting. I'm not sure what it was, but 16 points, 10 boards, uh, like four assists, something like that. He had a really nice game, easily the best game of his summer league. But prior to that game, he was like four of 30 shooting or something like that, or seven of 30 shooting. It wasn't very good at all. Uh, he was really struggling, had a lot of turnovers as well. But I think he's just he's getting used to the pace. You know, the motor is there, the effort is there. He just needs to be more consistent, which involves taking smarter shots, learning the flow of the offense, et cetera, et cetera. I think he'll get there, but all the tools are there. Zion, of course, his first summer league game was that earthquake that was during against the Knicks and R.J. Barrett, which got postponed because there was an earthquake that hit California. Um, Zion actually left that game early. He had knee-to-knee contact with another player and the Pelicans didn't want to waste it, uh, risk anything. So he took him out for the game and then later announced that he was shut down for the remaining uh, portion of the summer league. Smart move by them. I would not risk anything either. Very smart move. Um, and yeah, that's the, that's a lot of the basketball news. Um, I'm very, I'm, listen, the playoffs are going to be very interesting. Uh, well, the playoff race, I should say, is going to be very interesting. In the East, it still is a little top-heavy. Um, you know, not a lot of big-name players went to the East other than uh, Jimmy Butler switching teams from the Sixers to the Nets. I mean, uh, the Sixers to the Heat. And then Kyrie switched teams in the East from the Celtics uh, to the Nets, and then the only person who came really of uh, really huge momentum-shifting proportions was KD, obviously coming from the Warriors to the Nets. But he's most likely going to miss this entire year with his Achilles injury. So right now, it's not that big of a deal. So I don't think there's much has shifted, and Kawhi leaving the Raptors. So I don't know if, if the momentum has shifted that much. Obviously, the Raptors take a significant blow. They'll probably still make the playoffs with their roster that they have. I don't think they really signed anyone either. Um, I don't know what what Marcus Saul is doing. Did he resign? Oh, Marcus Saul had he was he wasn't a free agent. Yeah, okay. He had a he had a player option, a one-year player option with Toronto. I thought he was going to opt out and be a free agent. He never opted out. He picked up the option. So he's still there in, in Toronto. They still got Pascal Siakam. They still got Kawhi Leonard. I mean, <laughs> they still got Kyle Lowry. So they'll make the playoffs, but I don't think they'll be a real threat. Um, the Western Conference, on the other hand, is wide open. I mean... Most of the title contenders are in the West. Um, by the way, you still also have, listen, Milwaukee, Philly, Boston, the Pacers, 
maybe even Brooklyn to an extent. They didn't really add many people. They replaced D'Angelo Russell with Kyrie Irving. Maybe that'll get you another three or four wins in the regular season, but there's not going to be... They were 42-40. and Maybe they go 45-37 and or 47-34, and something like that. But it's not going to be a huge... Like, they'll be... They were the sixth seed. They'll maybe be the four seed. I, I, they might have a similar record to what Boston had last year, which was 49-33. and 33. It's very possible that's all they do. It's not going to be a, a huge, significant jump for the Nets with just Kyrie Irving. So you still have the Sixers, who they lost J.J. Redick, but they re-signed Tobias Harris. They signed Al Horford. So they're still a very good team. Um, Al Horford going to the Sixers is actually a huge problem because a couple years ago when my um, when Boston and Philly were uh, in that semifinals matchup, Al Horford was the only one who could handle Joel Embiid. Like he absolutely ate his lunch in that series, uh, and now they're on the same team. So one of the biggest threats to Joel Embiid on the offensive end of the floor in the Eastern Conference, is now on the same team as him. That's a problem. You got the Pacers coming back with Victor Oladipo. Uh, The Magic re-signed Vucevic and Terrence Ross. I I really don't think they make the playoffs. Um, There's there's no shot. Detroit signed Derrick Rose. That's not that much of a change. Um, Washington might be... A little better uh, if John Wall comes back completely healthy. Obviously, Miami just missed the playoffs um, at 39 and 43. Missed the playoffs by a couple games. They missed the eighth seed. Uh, they add Jimmy Butler. Not bad. You know, I, I think there's significant potential for the the Heat to come in at like a eight, uh, seven or eight seed, maybe even a six seed. And uh, that's about it. I mean, Chicago got drafted Kobe White, which is really nice, but I still think they're just so young. Um, Wendell Carter Jr. comes back. He was injured for majority of the year. And uh, also the Hawks. The Hawks are going to make the playoffs. You can put that down in the books, man. They're, I mean, they're young, yes, but they're talented. They have Cam Reddish, DeAndre Hunter, Trey Young, John Collins, Kevin Herter, those five guys right there, that that is that's an incredible lineup. That is an incredible lineup of young guys. I I really do think that and Trey Young now, he's uh he struggled a lot. And listen, I said he was probably gonna be a bust, and I'm backtracking. He really showed up the last half of the year, and if he keeps improving the way he, he had his rookie year. He's going to be a problem for a lot of people. Um, and now he has a much better team around him with a lot more shooters. Cam Reddish is a shooter. DeAndre Hunter can hit the corner three, but he is also an inside presence. John Collins, same thing. Kevin Herter, we know he can shoot. The Hawks are good. They're going to be good. If not this season, then definitely next season. They'll be a, a, a force in the future for sure. Uh, the Knicks are going to be bad. <laughs> the Cavs are going to be bad. Charlotte's going to be bad. Um, 
So it might it might shape up besides one or two, maybe three teams in the East. The top uh, five seeds are going to be relatively the same with Milwaukee, Toronto, Philly, Boston, and Indiana. Out of all five of those, Toronto is probably the the most likely to suffer. And for the like for the West, like I said, uh, it's kind of wide open. Um. Golden State, Denver, Portland, Houston, Utah, OKC, San Antonio, Los Angeles. Like here, these are all the teams out of the 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 sixteen teams in the West. These are all the ones that have a potential to make the playoffs, right? Golden State, Denver, Portland, Houston, Utah, OKC. No. San Antonio, Los Angeles, Clippers, Sacramento, the Lakers. Minnesota, no. Memphis, probably not. New Orleans, yes, they do. Dallas, yes, they do. And Phoenix, no. So, out of the teams that made the playoffs, OKC and, in my opinion, Golden State are the ones that... OKC's not making the playoffs. Golden State has the potential, I think, if if things really don't work out, uh, I mean, I know they got D'Angelo Russell. That helps a ton with the Clay Thompson injury. But I, if if anyone else gets injured, they're done. They're dead in the water. If if Draymond goes down, if Steph goes down, they're dead in the water. And again, I don't know. I I said they added D'Angelo, but he was lethal in the pick and roll in Brooklyn. That's how he got all his looks, all his assists. That's how they ran their offense. They were a pick and roll offense. Golden State doesn't run that. So I I don't know how D'Angelo is going to do with this uh, ball movement, you know, five out, spread the floor kind of offense because that's not really what he's been doing or how he flourished in Brooklyn. But it remains to be seen. Maybe he'll adapt really well. He is a great shooter, so we'll see. Um, Denver's going to make it. Portland's going to make it. Uh, Houston... Utah made significant upgrades. San Antonio Clippers are all going to make it. Sacramento has a really good chance of making it. They were they just missed the I I say they just missed. They were in the hunt for a while and collapsed really at the end. Uh winning losing games they really should have won. Uh but the Clippers were the 8 seed at 48 and 34. At 48 and 34 that gets you the 5 seed in the East. So there you go. There's just like the talent discrepancy there. Sacramento has a shot. I'm not sure if they're going to make it. They're probably on the lower end of the spectrum as far as teams who miss the playoffs that have a chance to make the playoffs this year. They're on the lower end. I still don't know if they're going to make it, especially now with a few of the talent that's come in. Um, the Lakers missed the playoffs. They're making it this year. Minnesota missed it. They'll probably miss it again. Memphis, still really young, but they might surprise a lot of people. Uh, New Orleans... Yeah, New Orleans is really they are a lot they are the Hawks of the East, you know. They them and the Hawks just have they both had tremendous drafts. Tremendous drafts. Probably the two best drafts this summer. The two teams that drafted the best. Hawks and Pelicans. Both teams missed the playoffs last year. Both teams might surprise people with the amount of young guys they have that they can make the playoffs. And remember, the Pelicans have more veteran guys than the, than the Hawks do. The Pelicans still have Drew Holiday. They added J.J. Redick. Uh, Jackson Hayes 
murdered someone on national television with a dunk yesterday. They have Zion. They have Nikhil Alexander-Walker. They got a lot of good guys. Um, I'm missing a bunch of role players that they have too, but they have they have a nice bench also. They lost. They traded Anthony Davis, of course. Alfred Payton left, even though he wasn't a pivotal offensive guy. Um, but the Pelicans are looking nice, so they might surprise a lot of people. And Dallas also, with depending on if Kristaps uh, Porzingis stays healthy, Dallas could easily make the playoffs, in my opinion. And then Phoenix is still. I mean, they added Ricky Rubio, but there's still going to be a dumpster fire for sure. I can't, I, whatever, I can't believe Ricky Rubio signed there, but I guess he had no other options, to be honest, and Phoenix needed a point guard. All right, that'll wrap it up for the NBA portion of this podcast. Let's move on to baseball, and then I'm going to talk about midsummer. Midsummer. I don't know, I keep saying midsummer. I think it's midsummer. Midsummer and Spider-Man Far From Home. Baseball. It's the all-star break. The AL won last night against the NL uh, 4-3. It's fun. I mean, I love the All-Star game. Uh, I was only able to watch a little bit of it because I went to go see Midsummer. Um, But the home run derby was spectacular. Uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., I mean, that shaped up to be his home run derby. You know, that's when he broke out. There was, uh, like a decade ago, Josh Hamilton... Had his tremendous home run derby at Yankee Stadium. He hit 28 home runs in a round. Vladimir Guerrero, first round ever in his home in a home run derby, hits 29. I mean, the the sheer volumes of home runs. They were talking about it um, during the broadcast about how people used to win the final round of the home run derby by hitting three or four home runs, and now guys are hitting monster bombs. 25 to 30 home runs around. It's insane. Incredibly entertaining. Uh, Vlad Jr. went to a double sudden death with Jock Peterson. That was sick. Probably the highlight of the entire derby. And then Vlad went toe-to-toe with Pete Alonzo, first baseman for the Mets. And Alonzo was able to outlast Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and take home the home run derby trophy. But... Again, props to Pete Alonso. He did what he had to do. He is the winner. But much like the Josh Hamilton home run derby, Josh Hamilton didn't win. Justin Morneau did. But everyone remembers it as Josh Hamilton's home run derby. Not Justin Morneau's. I feel as if history will probably have the same effect to this home run derby about how it was Vlad Jr.'s home run derby, even though he didn't end up taking home the trophy. Uh, first half assessments, get it over with quick. The Yankees are sick. The Mets are bad. All right, next point, next portion. No, the, um, the Yankees are, uh, they are fantastic this year. I am so excited for October. Um, everyone's back or mostly everyone's back. You know, Stanton got hurt again. Um, but everyone seems to be okay now. Uh, we're getting into a nice groove. The pitching, the bullpen, uh, there's been a couple of guys that are shaking the bullpen. I, I hope that gets figured out of who can be trusted and who cannot, even though I think it's pretty obvious right now. 
Aaron Boone thinks otherwise. Um, they are probably going to look to make some moves before the trade deadline. Um, try to acquire acquire someone. There's been rumblings that they are uh, the Yankees and the Red Sox are both interested in. I believe it was Zach Wheeler. Um, should the Mets should the Mets make him available? There's also rumblings that the Yankees are interested in fellow Long Islander Marcus Stroman. Don't know how that's gonna uh, how that's gonna work out if or if not those reports are true. Zach Wheeler, uh, I think for the for the past year or so, last year same thing uh, has been on the the trade rumor mill, just because his contract is expiring. The Mets probably won't pay him because of the Mets. And he'll probably walk in free agency. Uh, I'm sure he'll get a bunch of offers. He's a good pitcher. So it would make sense for the Mets to uh, to trade him considering this season is a wash for them. Edwin Diaz, or not just Edwin Diaz, but the Mets bullpen in general has, I think it was like 21 blown saves. If they made every one of those saves, they would have the best record in baseball. If they if they converted all of the blown saves, they had they would have the best record in baseball. If they converted just thirty percent of the blown saves that they have, they still be first in the national uh, in the in the America NL East. That it is unbelievable the kind of catastrophic season that they've had at the hands of their bullpen. The starting pitching has been pretty good. The offense has been shockingly consistent. As far as you know, Mets offense compared to last year, of course, when they couldn't score a run to save their lives. Jacob Degrom, Jeff McNeil, and Pete Alonso are all All Stars. Pete Alonso is tied, for, uh, or he leads the National League in home runs with thirty. Jeff McNeil has the highest batting average in the NL. Maybe I think it's up there for baseball. Uh, actually, he might be the highest batting average in baseball. He leads the. He's also up there in hits. He's batting like 350. Degrom's pitching well, but again, can't really get a lot of run support when he's on the mound for some reason. All these good things, and they can't win baseball games because their bullpen is so goddamn bad. The Robbie Cano trade and Edwin Diaz trade was. A complete and utter abomination. Um, I don't know what I said about it when it first happened. I probably said it was a decent trade just because of Edwin Diaz, but he is not even uh, an eighth of the pitcher he was last year. He is so astronomically bad. He can't get a guy out. It, it, it is haunting. It's It's petrifying to see him get on the mound. He was so good last year, and he now he's just so incredibly bad. Robinson Cano is just so bad, and you still got uh, a fat portion of his contract left that the Mets have to pay. Meanwhile, Jared Kelenic and Justin Dunn are in the Futures game in Cleveland, and it was just it, it couldn't have gone this. The trade couldn't have gone any worse for the Mets. In, te- in typical Mets fashion. It's not even like one of them is struggling. If Cano was struggling, but Edwin Diaz was still lights out, okay, whatever, you take the good with the bad. But for both of them to be just so awful, it's it's there's no answer to it. Other than that, 
It's the Mets. Classic Mets. All right, let's get into these movie reviews quick. I don't want to go dragging on and on and on about Spider-Man. So I'll start with Midsummer first because I'm probably going to talk about that a little bit more. And then I'll talk about Spider-Man when we get there. I have a, a few tidbits to talk, be a, d- disclaimers, I guess, before we get to Spider-Man. But first, Midsummer, Midsummer, by Ari Aster, his follow-up movie uh, from Hereditary. This movie is probably the weirdest shit I've ever seen in my entire goddamn life. It was... I I, I would say it's good just based on, you know, the, the uncomfortable and uneasy feeling that you get when you're watching it. It is the slowest of slow burns. And that's a good and a bad. It, it's good because it's... You you just you're tense and uneasy the whole movie, and it's unpredictable. But at the same time, its runtime is two and a half hours. So at a point, you're like, okay, when is this just gonna finally wrap up and we can get out of here? Because the slow burn to a point, it becomes sluggish. Sluggish. At least that's what I thought towards the end. Uh, but other than that, I mean, the one, the one thing that stands out and everyone talks about it, uh, if you look up the reviews, is the, the visuals of the movie. Um, it is... The, the, the themes and the tones of the movie are just so incredibly dark and unsettling. And it all takes place in this beautiful Swedish country in like the middle of nowhere all these beautiful flowers the trees are so green everything's colorful everything's bright but all these terribly dark things are happening so a lot of people are commending Ari Aster for Aster whatever Ari for his uh, portrayal of horror movies and how you know, people generally the traditional horror movie is um, unoriginal or predictable jump scares, things to that nature. It's dark; you can't see anything. Things pop out out of nowhere. Uh, whereas this one is just pretty much in broad daylight, yet everything is still unpredictable. You can see everything on screen. But you don't know what's actually going to happen. And it's a significant difference from how the movie starts. Which is really disturbing with uh, the main character, Danny, her sister, killing herself and her parents by rigging up these... uh... Uh, Spoiler alert, Jesus. But this happens before the title card even drops on the movie. But still, spoilers. And she hooks up the exhaust to the cars into the parents' room and then to her mouth. It is brutal. Like, very, 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 very uncomfortable. Um, Not as uncomfortable as uh, another scene where there's a, you know, a couple old people. If you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about with the, the old, two old people in the beginning of the movie. 
on top of the cliff, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. It's very, very, very disturbing. Um, but it is... That's what makes it good, I guess, because it is a horror movie, but it's different than any other horror movie that I've seen. And I'm not a big horror movie guy. I'm not at all. I hate them. I, I just did not my kind of movies. But this one was something that caught my attention and something that I wanted to see. And I was never scared, but I was uneasy. And that's how you have to describe this movie. I mean, it is wild. Uh, it's a lot like The Wicker Man, if anyone's ever seen that movie. Um, I never saw the original, but I saw the remake with Nicolas Cage, which, of course, as every Nick Cage movie is, is just completely over the top with him. Um, but it's kind of the same thing. It's the cult, the sacrifices, all that good stuff, the pagan cult shit that is just beyond creepy and weird. It's very odd. And there comes a point, there are some spoilers I'm going to be talking about if you haven't really noticed. But Danny, the main character, she is um, Florence Pugh, I think that's her name. Uh, but she's great. She is fantastic in the movie. Uh, she oh, she has to go from just being like... I mean, she is very clearly suffering from PTSD of everything that's happened with her family. So she goes from just like being calm to being uncomfortable to just sobbing and screaming her eyes out. A couple times in the movie. And there is a slow transformation with her um first of all everyone like 90 percent of the movie everyone's tripping sack uh there there's a lot of like hallucinogens that everyone takes in the movie and they even show it like the way they show it on screen is incredible uh there are several scenes in the movie where no one is taught like things are happening and you know things are happening but at the same time no one is talking no one is moving you, the screen is just like there was this one part after Danny mate uh, she wins she becomes the May Queen and she's sitting at the table wearing this like crown of uh, flowers and the she's sitting on a chair that has like vines and stuff all over it and the vines are moving and the flowers you can see. Uh, the bud of the f of one flower in front of her and like front of her face just keeps like pulsating and the background the trees are moving everything is just in one constant flow and it is like the bottom of the screen you can see when you're looking at Danny the bottom of the screen is just all flowing around it is visually incredible and I think that's one thing that Everyone really appreciated about this movie is just like the visuals of all of it. Uh, but I was saying, you feel like nothing's happening in that scene, but all these things are moving and the score is just like rising and everything is tense and then stops. And it like snaps back to reality and dialogue ensues or something else happens. And it's just a, a, a weird roller coaster of emotions. And things are crazy. And the one, the ending about it all is that Danny really, she finds her home. She's in a world 
after the beginning of the movie, what happens with her family. She's in a world where she's now all alone. She is depressed. Uh, she is triggered very easily and becomes emotionally unstable where she's crying and screaming and panting. Super big anxiety issues because of it all. Uh, and she's in this relationship that they established early on that the guy, Christian, I think his name is, does not want to be in with her. They've been dating for like four years and he wants out of it. He's been wanting out of it for like a year, his friends say. And they're still together. He's like completely ignoring her. He doesn't really support her at all. He's a total douche, pretty much. Like, <laughs> that's just how the best way to describe him. Is he's just a, he's like a fuckboy. He's a douche. And she wakes up at in this place one day, and the, it's her birthday, and the first person to greet her is the guy that brought them there who is part of this cult. He drew this beautiful picture of her, and he's the first one to wish her a happy birthday, and that's when it really starts. He's like, wow, that's really nice, and she starts, then she becomes the May Queen, and she starts taking place in all, starts taking part in all these activities with these people, and they celebrate her and they treat her like this amazing person. And that's and by the end of it, she ends up sacrificing Christian. She picks him to and they stuff him in this bear suit, which is uh, I think a, a direct reference to the the Nick Cage Wicker Man where he dresses up disguised as like a bear or something like that, something ridiculous like that. And she picks him to get sacrificed. And that ties up all the loose ends for the entire crew that's there. They all die <laughs> except for her. And now they talked about the people, how some they have to bring in outside people to the cult for mating purposes because they don't do incest unless it's for that profit thing, whatever that was, uh, whatever. Again, you got to see the movie. It's very weird. But they bring in outside people because they don't want incest. So she happens to be one of those outside people who the last frame of her is smiling and she is clearly now completely and utterly broken but at the same time she's found a new home and she's just going to leave every everything else behind absolutely nuts and that's the best way to describe it apps just absolutely nuts and in a world where it's a lot of remakes or sequels or adaptations of things. This is a very original and interesting movie, something that I've never seen before and I had no idea what to expect. I just knew some type of cult stuff, but I, I wasn't prepared for anything that I watched. Uh, 85 out of 100. There you go. That's my score. 85 out of 100. The next movie we'll talk about, and then I'll wrap it up because we're getting close to about an hour right now recording. Spider-Man Far From Home came out last Wednesday. Uh, both these movies came out last week. And I saw Spider-Man last Wednesday evening, and I saw Midsummer last night. But Spider-Man I know a lot more about. And 
before I start, I'm not going to talk about the mid the end credit scenes. I wrote a blog on it. You can go check out my blog if you are interested in reading my thoughts on the mid credit scenes and what they mean and some Easter eggs that were thrown in there and uh, who what they mean and who they reference and stuff like that. I'll link my blog in the description as always and you can click on that and read about the Spider-Man Far From Home credit scenes. Um, I thought it was amazing. I loved it. Uh, I loved every second of it. And Mysterio was fantastic. The only gripe I have with this movie is that sometimes it's a little predictable. Um, obviously, I knew Mysterio was the bad guy. How they revealed it was unique, and I didn't really see that coming. But Jake Gyllenhaal was a guy until the reveal where I loved him. I thought it was like he was super cool. Peter really liked him. He was really nice to everyone. He seemed like a genuinely good guy. And then, you know, it turned out it was all a ruse and he's actually the bad guy, as everyone knew he would be. But the way they went about it was very interesting. Jake Gyllenhaal gives an amazing performance. I'm really glad they brought him into the MCU. Uh, one thing that I want to talk about that I think is very significant in this movie um, is Zendaya and Tom Holland. They have incredible chemistry on screen as Mary, not Mary Jane, but MJ and Peter. And Tom Holland is your, your typical Peter Parker. And I would rank them as far as Spider-Mans go. Andrew Garfield might be one of my favorite Spider-Man. Uh, I'll probably... I'll edge it out to Tom Holland. I mean, I don't know. It's tough. Andrew Garfield was a good Spider-Man because he was super witty and funny. And uh, he he just portrayed that kind of Spider-Man really well. Um, Tom Holland, of course, is a younger version of... He's the youngest any Spider-Man's ever been in any movies, so it's a little different. But he's still he's still funny. He has his moments. Tobey Maguire wasn't really that funny as Spider-Man, let's be honest. Um, but Peter, uh, Tom Holland has definitely portrayed the best Peter Parker, hands down, without a doubt. And Zendaya has a very uh, different take on MJ. You know, Mary Jane has traditionally, even though her name's not Mary Jane, I know that, but Mary Jane has traditionally been a damsel in distress, a character who at a lot of times drags Peter down because she's getting in harm's way or she needs help. She's she's never been that kind of, she's never been like a sidekick, you know, someone who can help him when he needs help. She always seems to get in harm's way, and he always needs to save her. This MJ with Zendaya, she's not the super popular, you know, gorgeous girl that everyone wants to get with. Uh, she doesn't date the jock. She doesn't have to be won over. But, well, she has to be won over, but she's not like uh, this girl where he's like, Oh, she's way out of my league, blah, blah, blah. This M version of MJ is she's 
has a dark sense of humor, which is hysterical. She is very insecure, much like Peter. She doesn't really know how to talk to Peter, even though Peter isn't, you know, Peter's not this intimidating guy. But she does have a crush on him, and she is very awkward when they they talk together. And that is refreshing. Uh, and when she finds out that he is Spider-Man, she wants to help. She tries to help. She's not someone... She can fend for herself, first of all, and we see that when they're uh, in like the, the museum with the artifacts and stuff. We see that she can fend for herself. And again, that's refreshing. She can handle herself. Peter doesn't have to leave what he's doing and risk others being injured or dying to go help her. Granted, she wasn't alone, so that helped, of course. But she can fend for herself, and that's something that we haven't seen. And her being relatable, I mean, like, they're so, their first kiss is so perfectly high school, you know, 16-year-old awkward. And then it turns into, you know, a little bit more romantic. But that first peck is just so awkward. It's so great. The entire movie, you were, I, I was, <laughs> I was with my friends and they had their kiss. I was like, boom, yeah. Like, I gave a fist bump. I was so pumped, man. I wanted them to get together the entire movie. And, you know, Peter's making his move. He has, uh, you know, Brad. Of course, they name him Brad, who is one of the guys who was affected by the snap where he was actually five years younger than Peter and MJ, but he survived the snap, so now he's five years older and in the same class as them. But he has now been introduced probably as the new Peter Parker nemesis, right? Obviously, Spider-Man doesn't give a shit about Brad, but Peter Parker does, or did in this movie at least. And they kind of toned it back with Flash a little bit because how intimidating can Flash be for so long? He still, you know, teases Peter every once in a while, but he's not the main Peter Parker antagonist. Uh, it's Brad in this movie, and he's constantly flirting with MJ and trying to hook up with her or whatever. And that moment in the theater when she comes up and asks if he wants to go in on a pair of glasses or whatever, and they get to sit next to each other, and then he has to leave, and be Spider-Man, and watch as Brad sits next to MJ. Perfect Peter Parker Spider-Man conflicts. Perfect to a T. It's like, yes, finally get a chance to sit next to MJ, flirt a little, you know, maybe hold hands, stuff like that. And then he has to go be Spider-Man. It's perfect. So, them. The whole movie, I think, the, just, the dynamic between MJ and Tom Holland is so incredible. And that's something I really needed to, to get across because it is something we haven't seen before. You know, of course, they had their, their little bit of moments in uh, Homecoming where um, whoever the other girl was, Vulture's daughter. Um, I don't even remember her name, but Vulture's daughter who he was trying to uh, court and go to the dance with you saw the flirtiness a little bit of Zendai he flips him off like at the uh the dance or whatever and they have like a little couple back and forths that are cute um but now it's like he has this whole plan he realizes that she is the one that he is actually really interested in which 
it, it's good. I'm glad they did it that way. But at the same time, it was a little forced because there really was no connection between like flirtatious big time chemistry connection between them in the first movie. And now all of a sudden there is, which it's whatever. It's not that big of a deal, but it was a little forced. Um, his spider sense. They showed in the beginning, May throws a banana at Peter and he doesn't you know, react, and it just hits him in the side of the head, and she's like, oh, I thought your, she calls it his Peter Tingle, <laughs> I, I thought your Peter Tingle could, uh, could sense that, and he's like, yeah, I guess it's not working, and then they don't mention it for the rest of the movie, because you remember, they don't, they don't talk about it in Homecoming at all, and then Infinity War starts off with, you know, they introduce Spider-Man in Infinity War with his hair raising up on his arm, him turning around and realizing that uh, New York is being attacked. And then he, he dips. And then, of course, when he dies in Infinity War, uh, he he's scared. And I think this is where it comes from, really, is that he's petrified of what's happening and that his impending death is approaching. And he's, he's scared because his spider sense is telling him that. So I think in a way, in this movie, it's kind of like a PTSD kind of thing where his spider sense, one, is not reacting uh, because of what happened and him dying and being dusted in Infinity War, or two, he's scared to like acknowledge it or trust it or use it because of that feeling that it brought to him when he was dying. Uh, but regardless, at the end, it comes into play with Mysterio, which I called to my friend. I was like, they were going through the whole, the original sequence in the warehouse before Peter gets hit by a fucking train, uh, where Mysterio is just putting him through the ringer of, of hallucinations and illusions. Uh, I was like, he's going to have to use his spider sense at the end of this movie, and that's how he's going to get past all these illusions, which is, of, of course, what happens. He closes his eyes. He's at a web shooter, so he closes his eyes, and he just takes Mysterio's drones to town and breaks and destroys all of them, using his spidey sense to dodge everything that's happening. And of course, that was the only way that was going to happen, and now his spidey sense, or Peter Tingle, is very much in play in this movie, and it's something that he has now mastered, pretty much, to an extent. And they really hammer home the point that Peter is going to be the new Avengers guy. And I don't think they overplayed it, but they certainly uh, took time to really make sure you understood that. Yeah, Peter's really young, but he is the next Iron Man. As far as like the face of the Avengers. He is the guy. And Quentin Beck Mysterio uh, says something very interesting when they're all in like the S.H.I.E.L.D. little headquarters area. He says... Uh, never apologize for being the smartest one in the room. And listen, before Mysterio did his big bad reveal, he was he was a really like likable character, someone who didn't want to hurt Peter. He he thought Peter was a good kid. He didn't want him to get caught in this giant scheme of his. His his as far as you know, I read it. Uh. His only main targets were Fury and Maria Hill. 
after all of this was over. And then it ended up being Peter and Ned and MJ because they found out his grand scheme. And he said to the guy who lost the drone, when I have to kill Peter Parker, his blood is on your hands. So I don't think he wanted to kill Peter. And he, he really, he gave him like some pretty solid life advice, honestly. And, you know, that really stuck out to me. That line is don't ever apologize for being the smartest person in the room. And we know Peter is very, 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 very smart. But to this point, he has been sidelined to just being told what to do by Iron Man and other veteran guys from the Avengers. But now, Iron Man's dead. The Arguably the leader and co-leader, Iron Man, Captain America, they're gone. Uh, Black Widow, she's dead. Those are, the, like, those are the three guys, pretty much. You know, Thor is off doing Guardians of the Galaxy shit, probably. So he's not really... And he's not really the, the leader type. Not anymore, at least. We saw him, you know, he gave over the reins to As of Asgard to Valkyrie. And then he just dipped to go fuck around with Peter Quill and the Guardians of the Galaxy. So he's not really in the leadership kind of mindset. Who else is there? Not many to choose from. Doctor, Doctor Strange is more committed to... You know, the mystic arts and that and that whole interdimensional realm stuff to protecting that than being the leader of the Avengers. So Spider-Man really, I mean, Black Panther could be uh, an option. But again, he is the king of an entire country. So... You know, you got to think when it comes to leading the Avengers or leading his country, he's going to pick his country. Of course. Peter is really the only one who has who has as little obligation to be a candidate for leading the Avengers. Because you think, right, Tony Stark, what obligations did he have? None. He dedicated his, like, he had his multi-billion dollar company, of course, but Pepper ran that. He, he didn't really have, he understood that if he wanted to be Iron Man, he couldn't run his company. And that's why he signed over the CEO, whatever. Uh, he still owns the company, but he, all the day-to-day -day operations, business meetings, plans, all that shit, Pepper is in charge of. And that has been that way since, I think, Iron Man 2. And he was the, the, the guy for the Avengers. He made all the equipment, the tech. The suits, his main thing was the protection of Earth. And that's what he dedicated himself to. And he gave Peter those glasses, Edith, even dead, I'm the hero, hilarious, loved it, got a big chuckle from the crowd. He gave him those glasses, and of course he gives him the uh, Mysterio, which I couldn't believe. I was like, this is the, probably the dumbest thing he'll ever do in his entire life. He got the glasses back, but I'm still not. I'm still not set on... If those glasses are are still in in Peter's full control, I guess we'll have to see. I'm also not fully convinced Mysterio's dead. But Peter really, I mean, he has such, well, I was saying he has such little obligations. You know, he's just a high school kid. He is in charge. He, he really is the only one who can be, put all that time into being a head Avenger. And now, because of the mid credit scene, 
which, spoiler, Mysterio reveals Spider-Man is Peter Parker. Who knows what's going to happen? I mean, I didn't actually mention this in my blog, but I have a feeling that S.H.I.E.L.D. or Peter or Spider-Man is going to, you know, someone's going to tell J. Jonah Jameson what Mysterio really is and what he did and that he was like the product of like a, a, a hoax or something like that. That is something that happened in the comics when J.J. found out Peter's identity. Uh, he was able to convince him that he was part of some elaborate ruse or hoax. Uh, but there, I'm sure the whole Spider-Man's the villain and uh, it's actually Peter Parker. Somehow, someway, they're going to sweep that under the rug and everyone's going to forget. I'm really interested to see how that plays out. But Spider-Man, far from home. We are running a little long on time, so I'm going to wrap it up. Great movie. Midsummer, good movie. I'm not going to say great. Good movie. Totally different. I mean, if you want like a fun-filled, laugh, uh, entertaining movie, Spider-Man is the epitome of that. If you want to feel completely uncomfortable, uneasy, and creeped out for two and a half hours, go see Midsummer. But that'll do it for this episode of From My Point of View. Thank you all for listening. Enjoy your weekends. And, of course... I will talk to you all next Wednesday.